Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. Welcome back to Jolene from, from the other side of the state, from Tamworth. Yeah. If you have an opportunity to catch up with Jolene, catch up with her. She has a, a wonderful uh, testimony of just what God's doing in her life, which is really quite exciting. Um, last week, if you weren't here, we had a, a vision cast or a theme for the year that we as a church are looking at in 2019, that of living for eternity. And the whole idea of this was about us being heavenly-minded, about us looking beyond the here and now, which is what we exist in, and interpreting everything that we experience in the here and now with, with the life and the existence that is to come in eternity to interpret our jobs and our job opportunities, to interpret our family life and our situations in our family, to interpret our neighbors and our relationships and all the things that we encounter in this life in the here and now is to be interpreted with the light of eternity because as we interpret it from God's perspective, then we have a greater appreciation of what God is doing in our lives. And that's the same thing that goes with us here, even on Sunday from Every aspect of what we do at a, in our small groups of, of worship, when we sing praises to our God, as fellowship as we enjoy each other's company, as, as we hear the word and are ministered to from the word, all of this is to take place to equip us and to prepare us for the life that is to come. And I'd really appreciate it if all of us, including myself, we would have that mindset as we shared from Colossians 3.2 to set our affections on things above. As Jesus taught, to lay up treasures in heaven. That's to be the priority. And, and as we seek to live for eternity, even from the pulpit, the idea is to equip us from the word as we, as we listen to the words of Jesus to take those words that challenge us and call us to live a life that is set apart, uh, that is different from the world, that is truly a light in the darkness. And so one of the things we want to do as we look at this next series, we start a new series today, we actually wanted to look at the words of Jesus. Jesus said some amazing things. And there are certain things that Jesus said that cannot be disputed, they cannot be argued. For example, when he says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. There's no misinterpretation of that. People know the reality of Jesus Christ by how we treat each other. That makes sense. We, we, we talk, when he talks about just loving one another, that, once again, that there's no misinterpretation. You can't change that to mean something else. That's exactly what it means. As you look at the words of Jesus, though, he said some things that are also somewhat controversial. Things that would cause you to stop and think. Even the fact that Jesus taught using parables. So as he taught using parables, he could identify the Spirit of God working within a person's heart. And so that truth could be drawn from such things. And so we're going to look at some of these controversial things. And I think the reason why they're controversial is not because Jesus is being unfair or Jesus is being difficult. If anything, they're controversial because they directly confront you and I and our relationship with him and our connection to him. They directly challenge my obedience and my submission to him. That's the reason why they're controversial. They're controversial because I don't like it. That's all it comes down to. And so we're going to look at some of these things over the next eight weeks. 
we're going to look at some of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said what? There's a famous podcast. It's, it's worldwide. It's worldwide in GCC. So, uh, and so there's a famous podcast called Finn Said What? I would encourage you, have a listen maybe. Have a listen maybe. You don't have to. Okay, but, uh, but somebody had the great idea of, oh, let's replace Finn with Jesus. Jesus said what? And it's true. Whenever you hear somebody, if you're in a conversation and you hear someone there and say something, you're like, what? Did I hear it right? Did that make sense? And that's the challenge we have now because of these controversial things. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and we're going to look at what Jesus said about sin. So I can bow your heads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who leads us and guides us to all truth. We pray now, Lord, that as we look into your word, you might teach us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said what about sin? And this starts off with the most obvious of questions. What is sin? Now, if you ask anyone today, the the common person, what is sin? The response you will get nine times out of ten is the bad stuff we do. The bad stuff we do. You ask children in Sunday school, what is sin? Lying. What is sin? Hitting. What is sin? Stealing. And that's just my child. (laughs) But you ask what is sin, and from the child in Sunday school to the child at school to the adult, that is the most common Answer. And the thing is, even when you ask Christians, they say the exact same thing, but they qualify that phrase by adding the two words against God. It is the bad stuff that you do against God. And that's pretty much how we define what sin is. Even for us as Christians, when you look in the scriptures, we are given an itemized list of the seven things God hates. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through the 19, we have this list. These six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes. In the old King James, it says a proud look. A lying tongue. It's the second one. Hands that shed innocent blood. A false, sorry, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. You know what that's called? It's called a busybody. Six, a false witness who pours out lies. You know what that is? That's a gossip. And seven, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I like the way the old King James puts it. He that soweth contention amongst the brethren. Of all the things, and that seventh one, if you look at the old King James definition, he that soweth discord among the brethren, That is the thing that he abhors, the thing that he detests. When you have an individual amongst the family of God that goes around stirring up contention and causing division, that is detestable, that is abominable, that is abhorred by our Lord, which is a 
big thing when you think about it. It's like if someone came into my family and sought to divide my family by causing issues. Man, I would hate that. That'd be like the worst thing. How dare you break up the unity within my home? How dare you cause such division within this family? And that is why God hates it so much, because we are his family. And so you have these seven things. See, the thing is this. We define sin by the things that we do. It is how we explain it to our children. It's how we explain it to adults. And often it is labeled as the bad things that only covers really a portion of what sin actually is. Now, the dictionary definition is dictionary.com. Sin equals an immoral act considered... And more like considered to be a transgression against divine law. Now, this, the, sorry, the issue with most definitions, including this one, is the focus on this one word, act. What I mean by that is that we zoom in on the numerous things that we don't do right. That's what we look at. Uh, for example, my bad language, my bad actions, or my bad attitudes. But the bad things that spew out in our language, that are reflected in our action, or that are shown in my attitude, as, as a matter of fact, as our very being, is the fruit and evidence of our sinful nature. Now, what I mean by that is this. this we are not sinners because we do sinful things. We do sinful things because we are sinners. There's a difference. So those actions of my bad language, of my bad attitudes, of my bad actions, what those are, those are evidences of a broken nature. They are evidences of something that is wrong deep within my heart. You see, sin is merely the manifestation of what our hearts really are. For example, you see, you don't have to be doing anything. And it talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says that we are by nature, by nature, I've shared this over and over and over again. It says by nature, we are children of God's wrath. It doesn't say by action. It doesn't say by attitude. It says by nature. It's part of our very being. We do sinful things because we are sinners. Thinking that, thinking that does something. See, we think that our actions do something. We think that our actions, that if we change our behavior, that'll make us acceptable to God. Well, no, that doesn't. And that's the reason why we're looking at this today. You see, from the biblical perspective, we're told a number of different things about sin. For example, we are told of sin's origin in Isaiah 14. If you don't know what the story is in Isaiah 14, it talks about the fall of Lucifer. And what it was in Lucifer that caused him to fall. He was in the very presence of God. He was the highest of all archangels. And yet he fell. But why did he fall? If you read in Isaiah 14, verse 13, he says, I will, five times. I will, I will, I will. I will ascend to be the most high. I will be this. I will be that. Pride that caused him to fall. That's sin's origin. That's where it came from. And you can root every sin within the human race back to pride. What I want, what I'm going to do. You talk about sin's power in James 1.14 within our lives as we look through James, that where you can't say if you're tempted, you're tempted by God because God doesn't tempt people. We read that in James chapter 1. But we also read that every man sins when he is drawn away of his own lust. You know where sin's power is held? Within our own 
selfishness, within our own desires, within our own heart, within our own lusts. And we are told of sin's penalty in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what sin's penalty is. Sin's penalty is death. Death spiritually, like the breaking of relationship between God and humanity with the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve, and also the breaking of relationship spiritually that we are now cast aside because we have chosen to live self-governing, autonomous. And so we are given two things. There's two things, right? There are two views in our relationship to sin. There is the objective view. What I mean by objective is that it is, it, it is applicable to everybody, regardless of what you think or what I think. Okay, and we have this explanation given to us in 1 John chapter 4, sorry, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. If you want a more refined definition of what this verse is, in the original King James, it says, whoever commits a sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression or the breaking of the law. What's the law he's making reference to there? Something really basic, Ten Commandments. A transgression means to step over, to break, to transgress. So you want to know that your objective definition of sin, it is a transgression of the law. Thou shalt not steal. People understand that, and that's applicable to everybody. Thou shalt not commit murder. That's applicable to everybody. You can't misinterpret that at all. You have a over, you shall not make idols. You shall not blaspheme. There are objective aspects of, of sin that are applicable to everybody, and we all know and understand this. But from the objective side, we also have a subjective side, which is a personal preference. And this was actually addressed in James chapter 4. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, what I mean by that is that there are certain things that I cannot do that I know other people can and I know I cannot do them because, to me, it is sinful. I can't play rugby anymore. I can't play rugby anymore because I have a bad attitude when I play rugby. Like, I love playing Oztag. I love playing touch. That's fun. I really enjoy that. When I start playing rugby, then, then good old cheap Joe comes out. Good old Mr. Niggle Joe. Good old throw a little punch in the ruck Joe. That's, and that's bad. And that shows, see, other people I know play rugby, they have no issue with it. They come to me and say, Joe, do you want to play rugby? No, bro, you shouldn't play either. Why? Oh, because, you know, it brings out the worst in you. No, no, Joe, it brings out the worst in you. <laughs> oh, that's where the subjective side comes into it. And so I, I, I can't have a drink. I remember young Jono, young Jono, young Jono, I still remember this way, way back in the day when he had a beer. And I've known young Jono since he was year seven. And I've watched him mature into the fine young man that he is now. And the thing that shocked me was when I saw him holding a beer. <laughs> he was holding a beer. Now, he was, he was, it was legal age. It wasn't like he was 16 or something. Were you 16? No, just kidding. Well, no, but, but you see, he can have a beer and have no issue with it. To him, it's not a sin. To me, it is. Because I can't handle my alcohol. I'm that much of a wuss that I cannot handle alcohol. Because when I, hand, when I have alcohol... I, I, I'm one of those, um, what are they called, binge drinkers. And once I start, I don't stop. Pathetic. But I know that for me, that's a sin. Not for Jono. He can handle his liquor because he's a real man. <laughs> What's terrible is when I said a real man, you all laughed. That's terrible. 
Okay, but do you know what I mean? But this is why, even though, see, for us that know to do good and we don't do it, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with someone and I don't, to me that's sin. I know I'm supposed to show forgiveness to someone and I don't do that, to me that is sin. So there's that subjective aspect, okay? I don't go over and, 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 and come along with my brother and my sister and pray for them and encourage them. Well, then to me, that is sin because I know that that is the good that God has called me to do. So there's that subjective nature of sin, as well. And in both of these views, both of these views are actually expounded on through the words that Jesus says. And that's what we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 27 to 30. I do have it up there, but if you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles. And this is what it said. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's full on, man. That is full on. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Pluck it out. Just take it. You're like, wow, that's, that's, sorry, I didn't realize that. Sorry, that's. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Whoa. That, that's, no offense, that's insane. That is insane. In his explanation of sin, especially in this case regarding sexual sin, he does a number of things. And we're going to work our way through these things. Firstly, firstly, Jesus seeks to tear down the pharisaical idea of sinfulness and lead them to a more accurate divine understanding. See, you'll notice in this whole passage of Matthew chapter 5, there are, Jesus used this phrase, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. Six times he uses that phrase, you have heard it said. In verses 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. You have heard it said. Instead of, like he did in Matthew chapter 4, it is written during the temptation from the enemy. So when he said, you know, it is written in verses 4, 7, and 10 of Matthew chapter 4, questioning Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not. It is written, it is written, it is written. Why is it that he starts off with this phrase, you have heard it said? The reason being is what the Pharisees did to God's law what the Pharisees did to God's word. See, Jesus is addressing the religious traditions implemented by the Pharisees to prevent them from breaking God's law. What I mean by that is this. Let's say, for example, the law is you drive 50 kilometers an hour. That's the law. So the Pharisees were like, ooh, well, I don't want to break that 50-kilometer mark. I'll tell you what, let's make it. You can only drive 40 kilometers. That way, we've got a 10-kilometer leeway that will stop us reaching that 50K mark. 
So they set this buffer. They set this, this, this fence of protection around God's law to stop them from breaking it. Now, for all intents and purposes, that makes sense. I think that's a good idea. You know, I, I can understand where they're coming from. But human, human beings being the way they are, because we're tainted by sin, you know what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees started taking that 40 kilometer an hour mark and making that on the same level as God's word. They started living and saying that this one that they created is on same par, is on same value, is on, is on the same authority as God's word. They made their traditions God's word. That's what they had done. That was the problem. I mean, and, and this, is, this is what happens and the reason why Jesus condemns them number of, a number of times. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 9. And I will read this out to you. I did put it up there, but I would much rather read it to you. Mark chapter 7, verses 5 to 9 says this. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the, to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Hang on, there's a preacher who I heard who actually really made a good comment about this. He said that the Pharisees spent all their time observing Jesus, listening to his teaching, watching the miracles that he would do, and they said, what can we get, what can we get this guy on? What can we trip him up on? And you know what they could find? Hey, your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. Was the issue hand-washing? No. Was that the thing that they were actually called to do? No. This is something that they had created themselves, that they, they don't hold to our traditions. Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, see the difference? You have heard it said, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Verse 7, they worship me in vain. Here it is. Their teachings are merely human rules. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. See the issue that they had done? They had made their traditions law. They had made their traditions divine. And the reason why Jesus had to establish this about sin is because sin is never removed by our outward, our, by our outward action. Sinful nature isn't changed through outward conformity. The Pharisees were the most righteous, the most pious, the most upstanding, the most moral, most religious people of the day. They tithed religiously. They went to synagogue religiously. Every week they read God's word religiously. They adhered to the Sabbath religiously. They were at work in the temple religiously. If you looked and equated what the Pharisees did back in those days in today's uh, view and said, this is what today's church looked like, you think these people have got it on. They've got it all together. Look at how righteous they are. Look at how willing they are to serve. Look at what they are doing. And yet, Jesus condemned them. Your hearts are nowhere near me. 
Why? Because sin isn't reflective in our conduct. It's manifest of what our inward nature is. And this is what Jesus is trying to establish here. It leads on to the next exposition, but he says to them, it is not about what you do. Actually, one individual said how Jesus and the Pharisees would agree on roughly 80% of everything when it came to religious adherence. On pretty much everything, except the standards by which they did what they did. They used a different set of rules to govern their lives. They adhered to a different set of laws. They had nothing to do with the relationship in which God had desired to have for them. And that's the reason why they were condemned. So, this emphasizes the first thing. Sin is more than just outward action. Sin is more than just outward action. But this leads on to the next exposition of Jesus. The next exposition, he says, that objective commandment of you shall not commit adultery. And it's aligned with a subjective attitude of heart rather than the physical action. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we read this. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He wants to emphasize, he wants to emphasize, and I've shared this illustration a number of times. It's actually taken from John Bevere. John Bevere, which is, I really enjoy reading some of his stuff and listening to some of his sermons. But in this passage of Matthew chapter 5, I think I still have it there. In Matthew chapter 5, the breaking of the law would involve somebody. So if someone was to commit adultery, the breaking of that law is if someone physically transgresses that law. Meaning someone has a sexual encounter with someone other than their spouse. Spouse. That's how the law is broken. Thou shalt not commit murder. That, that law is broken if I physically go and choke someone out and I choke them to death. That is when that law is broken. Thou shalt not steal. That law is physically broken when I take something that does not belong to me and keep it for myself. That is how the law works. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, if you look at a person, if you look at a person with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You see the difference? It's not just action. It is the attitude of heart that is manifest as well, which means that if you look at a person with lust, then you're guilty of adultery in your heart. That if you hate somebody without just cause, you're guilty of murder within your heart. That is what the Word of God says. So he's trying to change the focus. You see, lust is lust, whether it is manifest in action or harbored in the secretness of your mind. It is still lust. That is the reality. It shows you and I that the gauging of sin is determined by how God sees it and not how you and I justify it. Sin is sin. Irrespective, and I know, I know how easy it is to justify one's sin. I know how easy it is to justify that bad attitude I have toward a brother. I know how easy it is to justify the reason why I don't fulfill certain responsibilities because they did this, because they did that, because they said that. No, no, that is not what you and I are called to. You see, the heart. The heart is to be measured by grace. The heart 
and by grace. It is to be, the heart is to be measured by the relationship we share with our Lord. The adherence to the law, the adherence to the law only reflects, and, and here's the thing, only reflects a little bit of what our heart is like. But this is the standard to which Jesus has called me to. That if I dwell in my heart, if I linger in my heart, if I entertain thoughts in my heart, that will draw me further away either from him, draw me further away from my relationship with my wife, that will draw me away from my relationship with my children. That is just as damaging, just as damaging and just as heartbreaking to the heart of God than physically doing it. Now, this is the reason why he establishes this regarding sin. The first thing was changing the viewpoint of what sin is. The second thing is changing the measurement by which sin is gauged. This is what Jesus does. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but if you look at someone, you're guilty of adultery in, the, in your heart. Those are the, 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 he's trying to change the focus that the Pharisees had. He's trying to change the focus that you and I have. Which means this, which means this, if my nature cannot be changed by physical effort, by the conforming to a set of standards, by the changing of my behavior, if I cannot change my standard before God through my physical action, how is that done? How then does one be made acceptable to God? And this is the whole story of the gospel. This is what Jesus had to come to this life. This is why he clothed himself in human form and experienced the things that we experienced and yet was without sin. And, and so for us as, as non-Christians, when we're non-Christians, it was the point of bringing us into humility of saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me from my sin." And as, as Christians, it's the charge for us to do, as Paul encourages us, to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, I remember many, many years ago, this would have been 2006, 2006, and a year eight boy came to me and said, Joe, that is not fear. That is not fear. And I said, what do you mean? That is not fear that God condemns me over my thought life. That is not fear that even though I did not act on how I thought or how I felt, that God would condemn me for my sin. And Tim Hawkins, who was the youth pastor for 30-odd years at St. Paul's Castle Hill, I remember his answer to that was, you're not being condemned for your thought life. You're not being condemned for those feelings that you have. He says, then why am I being condemned? You're being condemned for not meeting God's two greatest commandments. What are those? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love others as yourself. That's where the condemnation comes. Which stopped them to think, wow, okay. Why? Because the thought life is an expression of one who does not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That how they feel as an expression of one who does not love others as they love themselves. And because of that, that is where condemnation comes. 
But it's from here, from those, I guess you could say, foundational things, or what I like to call the setup. If you've played volleyball, you have your set. You have your set, so you can spike it. So Jesus speaking about, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the set. Now he's going to bring the spike. The spike is that controversial statement. <laughs> what? If your right eye causes you to stumble, if your right hand causes you to stumble, gouge it out, cut it off, and throw it away. Now, the reason why this is controversial is that people use things like this to maintain power. Things, people use things like this and the misunderstanding of them to, to have sway over individuals. You want to see this happen in 16th century England. William Tyndale. William Tyndale, whose major heart's beat was to... It, I would encourage you, read some of the church history biographies. Read what some of the people went through throughout history so that we could have the Word of God in English. William Tyndale was a man who translated the Bible into English. And he was killed for it. William Tyndale was a man who sat there and taught people. He said people should have the word of God in the common tongue so that they could understand it for themselves. Martin Luther was the same. Jan Hus uh, in Germany was the same. I would, I would encourage you to read. They have the movies on YouTube. Watch the movies. Absolutely insane. But he was challenged. And I would read the book, but watch a movie as well. If you're not going to read a book, then watch the movie. Okay? But... The thing about William Tyndale is this. He was having a meal, and he was told by one of the clergy this. God's word says, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. Give the scriptures to ignorant men, and they'll soon be tearing out their own eyes. Hither and yon will be a nation of blind men. That was the reason as to why they didn't want to have the word of God in the common tongue. Tyndale's response, without God's word, we are a nation of blind men. And he went and he sought to interpret the scriptures into English. And this is the reason why, okay? This is what happens. But Jesus was not saying physically, if you do something wrong, pluck out your eye. If you look at something you're not supposed to, pluck out your eye. If you do something you're not supposed to, cut out your hand. What that's called is what's called an ascetic lifestyle. An ascetic lifestyle. And what an ascetic lifestyle is this? The trying to gaining of spirituality and acceptance of God through causing yourself physical pain. And I would do this as a youngster. As a young Christian man who was trying to earn God's favor, I would do something wrong. I might have looked at something that I shouldn't have looked at. I might have done something that I shouldn't have done. And you know what I'd do? I would sit there and I would punish myself in a means to regain God's favor. That's what I would do. Until I learned that God doesn't want my pain. Until I learned nothing I could do can earn God's favor. You know why I don't have to punish myself? Because Jesus took that punishment for me. You know why I don't have to afflict myself? Because Jesus took my affliction. You know why I don't have to condemn myself? Because Jesus took my condemnation. That is the whole purpose of Jesus Christ coming, of setting me free of these things. This is why Romans 8 says, Now therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, you are no longer condemned because Christ took, all upon, took that all upon himself on the cross. And so when he sits there and he talks about, look, if you do something, pluck out your eye. If you do something, cut off your hand. He's explained to them a couple of things. One, the seriousness of sin. 
the seriousness of sin, that you would be willing to do something to show, oh, this is how, this is how serious God views it. How serious am I? How serious am I? How remorseful am I when I do something I am not supposed to do? How remorseful? The fact that I've broken my relationship with my God, and because the relationship with my God is broken, the fellowship I have is gone. I've broken the fellowship I have with you, with my brothers and with my sisters. Do I see the damage that can be done? One individual said this, the eye is referring to what we allow ourselves to see. The hand is referring to our actions. If there is something in our lives that continually causes us to fall into sin, adultery or otherwise, then we need to cut that out of our lives. This is just as painful as plucking out our eyes or cutting off our hands. We need to focus on the rewards as Jesus soothes our pain. This is what the eye and the hand represent. And you know and I know that there are sometimes really difficult choices that need to be made if they are impairing our relationship with Jesus. Whether it might be a friendship we may need to cut off. Whether it may be an individual that we should stop seeing. Whether it be something that is affecting each and every one of our lives, whether we would be willing to cut that out and throw it away. I know for myself that I've had to do this. I know that there are friendships that I used to have and that because of those relationships, I had to cut them out of my life. And you know what happened? I was mocked for it. I was made fun of. I was basically persecuted. But, as Romans 8 says, for I count um, the things that occur are not worthy to be compared for the glory that shall be revealed in us. That, that the suffering in this present world is not worthy to be compared for that which shall be revealed in us. See, this is what we should be willing to do. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate in this passage. So, what things in our life are we living, are willing to cut out? Are we willing to do away with? Are we willing to pluck away? That's one of the first things he's trying to explain when he talks about the whole thing of cutting away and plucking out. The second thing he's trying to communicate is the willingness to cast out. Sorry, the willingness, not, no, not to cast out, the willingness to consecrate our, our lives to the things of Jesus Christ. To consecrate onto that which has long-lasting, eternal benefit. As we talked about last week, it's about looking at the bigger picture looking at the eternal destination. And that means we have to weigh up the temporary relief or enjoyment of this season and see whether it's worth, worth what we have that's awaiting us as we look to the eternal. And lastly, Jesus emphasizes in this description the reality that salvation from sin, that, is a, um, that, that salvation from the sin that is a part of us and cannot be taken away from doing good can only come about by, means, by the means by which God has set in place for us. Jesus was establishing here to the Pharisees the seriousness with which God views sin. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be taken lightly because sin can enslave you. Sin can destroy people. Sin can break relationships with God and with each other. Isaiah 59 Verses 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, 
nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And it's of note that Jesus uses the same description, the same description in another passage. If you turn to Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 to 9. So the same issue of adultery that he addresses in such a serious way, he also uses regarding how people cause others to stumble, how people who deliberately compromise dabbling with the world instead of reaching out to it are given the same condemnation. In Matthew chapter 8, 18, verses 6 to 9, we read, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown, and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter a life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Jesus' shocking words to the religious leaders of his day are, sadly, just as applicable now as they were then. For the 21st century church, it is the honest examination, it is our honest examination of how we are to view our standing before him. If you look at a relationship that you have in your life, you protect it, you cherish it, and you'll do whatever you can to make sure that that relationship is cherished and protected. This is what we're called to do for our Lord. The problem is, are we holding to the traditions we have created in order to show our spiritual we are before others? Am I holding to a standard of my own devising instead of the standard that is held within God's word? We do this often, and I still do this now. We have to have the honesty, the, the spiritual integrity to question some of the things we set in place around us. And whether the thing that I'm holding you to is actually God's word and God's calling on one's life or my expectation of you. And that can only be reached through prayer and submission to who he is. Are you doing the same of me? Am I doing the same of you? If, if you reach this conclusion, I think, honestly, there needs to be a repentance of heart, a reconciliation of relationships, the, the, to allow God in His grace to work that grace within our hearts to openly and honestly admit our failings and allow God to restore that which we have broken. When I look at the seriousness of sin, I see the salvation of our Savior. When I look at the seriousness of what it cost Him, I can understand why then the plucking out of an eye or the cutting off of a hand is the illustration He uses. It was costly. It cost Him so much. It cost the life of His Son. Sin is costly. Sin is serious. Sin is deadly. 
And in order to pay a serious price for sin, it cost him his life in order to pay that price. That resulted in a brutal, unfair, unjust death for us. He said what he did so we can have a small insight, a small insight into his heart for us. That it was not an eye he was willing to lose, but his life. That it was not a hand that he was willing to cut off, but his very body. That it was not something temporary that he's willing to sacrifice, but everything that he is, so that we could experience the joy of being made sinless in his sight. So, perhaps we can start, as we look at our lives, with the words of the psalmist. That as we look at what Jesus said about sin, we can come before him and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As I dwell upon the words Jesus said, I think that is a good place for us to begin. We are told in 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves as to whether we be in the faith. We are told here by the psalmist to search, well, not even search me, to ask God to search me. And as he reveals the things within our heart that we've set up, the, the laws, the expectations, the personal things that we've placed on the same level as God's word, that he, by his grace, will give us the courage, give us the strength, and give us the wisdom to tear those things down so that we might serve him openly and honestly the way he desires us to serve and not what I think. Does that make sense? So I want to encourage you to take these words that Jesus said seriously and see what he does in our lives this coming week. I'm not going to ask the music team to come out, but I will ask the prayer team to come forward. So if the prayer team can come forward, please, that would be greatly appreciated. When I close in prayer, I would like to ask anybody to come up and if there are things in, in your heart, things in your life that you've set up, if there are things that you know is not of God, whether it might be an attitude, whether it might be an action, whether it might be anything, something that you desire God to grant you deliverance from, then I would love for you to come forward so we can pray for you. Pray for you so we can pray for each other, actually. I would encourage you to find someone to pray with, to pray for each other, because we're in this journey together. We're on our journey to the eternal. We're on our journey to be with our Lord Jesus. And I think it would be best if we could pray for each other on that journey, to come alongside and to encourage us, to, to, to bless us, uh, to, to equip us as we look to the future. So if you'd like to be upstanding, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as your people, we stand before you with heads bowed and ask for you to search us, to search us, O oh God, to know our hearts, to test and see if there be any wickedness within us. Father, and to lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we pray that today we would be willing to pluck out those things in our lives that cause our eyes to be distracted from looking unto you, our author 
and perfecter of our faith. That you'll help us to cut away those things in our lives that hold us back from more intimacy with you, that keep us back and, and underneath and captive, Lord, to our own personal desires and our own personal selfishness. Father, that we would be able to lay ourselves before you openly and honestly, that you might fill us with your Spirit, that you, by your Spirit, will give us courage, that you will give us boldness, that you will give us discernment, that you will give us wisdom to do away with those things that are not of you within our lives and to press on to the mark before us, to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Father, we need you to do this within our hearts. We cannot do this ourselves. We cannot do anything of ourselves. Father, that, that we, will help, we will not rely on our own strength, but upon the power of God in your spirit. So we ask for you to dismiss us now. We ask for you to work within the hearts of each individual here to give us the boldness not only to be prayed for, but to pray for others so that we truly will be a light shining in the darkness, that we might truly be the, the true picture of who you are, the love of Jesus that goes forth and transforms lives. So we thank you. And we praise you. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters.